Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nerds Adulting, your favorite nerdy podcast. I am Peter, your one of your main hosts here. I'm joined by Ruthie and Josh once again. Ruthie and Josh, how you doing? Very good, Peter. How's it going? Ruthie, how about you? Uh, I'm doing all right. Doing good. It's awesome. Sunday. Yes. So today's episode is a retro Sunday fun day episode where we go back and we revisit something with uh, you know a retro take on it. But today is a very special day. Um, today we are joined by the Arcane Carolina boys, as I like to say, Michael and Charlie. How are you guys doing? Doing great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> really well. As the person who edits Arcane Carolina, I'm really glad to see that other podcasts do the same stuff we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I learned that sometimes uh, it's just better to go back and, and edit it a little bit piece by piece. So um, I'm super excited to have you guys here. Uh, I'm going to give you a few minutes to let you introduce yourselves and talk about your podcast. You know, do a little little cross promotion, little plug for you all. So uh, tell us about your podcast. Sure. Uh, well, you know about it because you came on it. So if you're a fan of Nerds Adulting, you can check out uh, Pete talking about folklore, myths, legends, just even modern weird stuff. Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts and all that kinds of stuff is what we cover. Um, I'll let Michael expand on this a little bit, but uh, we always do like to make it a point that we don't pretend to be the holders of some secret truth we're not the <laughs> we're not the ghost hunter type people that like take their, take their shirts off and try to punch the ghost uh like like certain shows <laughs> um i mean like we like to dig into the fact that in the carolinas there's so much that you can find around that's just weird some of it's not even controversially you know weird in terms of whether or not it's real it's just weird stuff in the Carolinas, archaeological aspects of the Carolinas that, you know, people may not may not have figured out or remembered why a particular thing exists. But there's a really interesting story behind it or the really complicated story uh, that is the history of a specific town or somebody in South Carolina seeing Thunderbirds or somebody in South Carolina seeing lizard men or somebody in North Carolina seeing the Brown Mountain Lights, that kind of stuff. Or the many people in North Carolina who apparently... Uh, were victims of the devil showing up to take them to hell. So all <laughs> kinds of fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which that particular story that you're referencing is fun uh, and, and a good example of what we do. We dig into the historical context behind a legend and we'll go as far back on the record as we can to figure out like, okay, where did this start? Who told it? Why did they tell it? What motivations did they have for this story? Um, and then dissect it. And sometimes it, it's really surprising when you're like, Oh crap, this person really did exist. And this actually, this, <laughs> this actually did happen. Um, I, I don't think that Satan uh, came and dragged this guy out of his cabin to hell. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, some of the less, sensational stories uh you, you were very uh able to find the truth of so yeah i love i love you guys podcast i had a lot of fun when we came on it kind of turned into we i forgot the name of the of the guy that lived in the sewer but then we went on this whole tangent where we were talking about he was a family man and like he was really just trying to find it was just it was such a hilarious take how we just went like we took one little shred of evidence and we just went with it and like, like went like a thousand miles per hour with it was hilarious. But um, yeah, it's uh it's fun stuff. Uh, I've laughed out loud plenty of times, like the one with the crocodile dude getting hit by the car. That was a great bit you guys did. That was hilarious. Um, <laughs> it's lizard man. Lizard man. Sorry. <laughs> the yes. The preferred nomenclature is lizard man. <laughs> yes. So um, 
I really, I really enjoy uh, you guys' podcast, and so I'm just, I'm happy to have you here. I think there is some similar overlap, maybe not quite the, quite the mythological type thing here with today's topic. So today we are talking about a, a, a personal favorite of mine from growing up, uh, the movie The Goonies. Uh, today we're going to take a look at some of the things like the director, the, the writers, the actors, things like how it influences film today, what it means to you. I have some fun facts I'm going to go over, and I'm just super excited to, to dive into this. Do you guys want to go ahead and get started on this? Yeah. Very good. Let's dive in. Awesome. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with, uh, with the director, writers, and, and actors, and kind of drive the conversation there. So the director was Richard Donner, who also directed all of the... All the Lethal Weapons, one, two, three, and four. He also directed Mel Gibson movie Maverick. Ruthie, he also directed Scrooge. I know one of your favorites. Yep. Um, <laughs> the Toy. That's a good movie. Yes, but. yes. Uh, the Toy and Superman one and two. So, uh, Charlie, I'll let you start off with the the director and what you think about him and, and his and his movies and such. Uh, well, Spielberg was the producer, right? Yes, he supposedly yes. wrote the story, but yeah, he had a producer credit as well. He's so known for the story. I, I liked how the director was able to integrate little nuggets of of Spielberg stuff, like the Gremlins reference, and the director seemed very open to having fun, making sure it was fun for everybody involved in the production, and that everybody got a moment to shine. Um, so, as far as the craft of of directing i think he did a great job with that um as far as him as a director yeah i love scrooge i um uh, I, I have a tradition where christmas eve after everybody else is in bed i sit on the couch and i watch scrooge usually it starts when people are awake and everybody's like dude i don't want to watch this <laughs> time and i'm like well it's a tradition and we're watching it so um i can yeah. relate <clears throat> i can definitely Big relate fan. i i would say that i'm a fan <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what about you? What do you think about Richard Donner and his body of work and his work on the movie The Goonies? One of the things that's most shocking about Richard Donner is just like how long his career has been and is. This dude directed episodes of Perry Mason in the 1950s. <laughs> and, oh, wow. And he has a directing credit in IMDb from 2006. You know, he directed episodes wow. of The Wild Wild West, which is one of my favorite like syndicated rerun TV shows from when I was a kid. And uh, it just he's directed so much stuff. And the guy clearly enjoys directing weird things. You look at Scrooge. Scrooge could have been a much more mundane retelling of that story. But instead, he just like leans way into the supernatural weird stuff, the, the fantasy elements. And I love that kind of thing. It makes talking about this makes me want to go back and rewatch the Perry Mason episodes that he directed. I say rewatch because I have watched every episode of Perry Mason. <laughs> I'll have to ping you offline and see what you think about the new Perry Mason stuff after this episode. Maybe <laughs> you have the old, if there was Perry Mason Mego figures in the Perry Mason uh, courtroom playset, would you own it? Oh God, yes! Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I'm also 700 years old, so you know, like naturally, I think that the original Perry Mason is probably the best courtroom drama ever made. Yeah, awesome. Um, Ruthie, what what did you think uh, about Richard Donner and his ability to, or his his directing and the way the movie came out and his history of film? Uh, I really, I mean, a lot of his films I really enjoy. I think he just has like, I don't know, he's got a way to like visually make 
characters and scenes like very like relatable, even like super fantastical things. Like obviously the Goonies has like all these fantastical things that I guess as kids we wish would happen, these awesome adventures. But he also does it visually in a way that it's like, I could be that kid. I could be that guy or that girl. Uh, and I like that. So his characters are like super relatable and then like over the top at the same time. He like leans into tropes just enough to where you like know what trope he's talking about. And, you know, but then he, he's got like this underlying substance. He lets the actors kind of pull out. So that's cool. I like his stuff. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I was like, that name sounds familiar. And I went back and I was like, holy crap. Like he direct Maverick was a movie I liked a lot um, as a kid too. I just, I, I love the idea of that film. And Lethal Weapon was a big film of my childhood too. So I was like, I didn't even think about it. Like, holy shit. He directed like some of these movies, even Superman one and two. So it was kind of cool to go back. Josh, what do you think about Richard Donner and his, um, his filmography or his body of work. So he's, he's very talented. He has a way of conveying, uh, understanding how to convey emotion that comes with experience. And it definitely shows even with his later, even with his early stuff. So, um, he has so much stuff under his belt. He's got episodes of the twilight zone. Like you said, wild, wild west, the man from, uh, uncle, um, all these kinds of things. And it's really interesting. Actually, um, the nightmare, at 20,000 feet, which is one of the Twilight episodes, I don't know if you remember it, where the child sees the the entity on the wing and he's like, Mom, and people don't believe him and all this stuff. And, and that guy is like, I need to get the fuck off this plane. Like that, that whole thing is like one of the most memorable episodes of the Twilight Zone, at least like the old stuff, the older stuff that mm-hmm. I can remember. And it still rings true. Like even if I watch it now, I'd be like, I don't, I don't fucking like this episode at all. I need to stop watching it. So his ability to convey that stuff is is really interesting and 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 I credit him and it's I mean credit is credit comes from where it's due so good on him he's a very talented individual. Oh, I just want to know he also directed Lady Hawk, which is simply one of the best fantasy movies ever made, especially in terms of emotional texture, like you were saying. Great movie. Like I have no idea what that is. I have to look that up. <laughs> great, it's great. You well, really should check it out. Like I said, I'm 700 years old, and <laughs> uh, you should watch it. It's phenomenal. Okay, I'll look into it. Um, so I was saying, going back and reviewing, like just the the people that put this movie together, it's pretty interesting, like the how much work they've done over the course of time. And so Chris Columbus was he did the screenplay. The story was, I guess, concocted by Steven Spielberg. So he put the screenplay together, but he has also had. Um, a very successful career. Most notably, the ones I picked out was he did uh, as a writer, Gremlins 1 and 2, which was referenced in a movie which Charlie uh, brought up earlier. Home Alone 1 and 2 he directed. I mean, I think we're all fans of Home Alone. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire was a director. And he also directed Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So, Charlie, what do you think about Chris Columbus and his body of work? All right, before we get into that, can we reflect on how Mrs. Doubtfire is absolutely insane and Robin Williams is actually a pretty <laughs> bad guy in that story? Like, I, I 100% agree with you. I had this conversation with my wife not too long ago. Terrible! <laughs> Pierce Brosnan's character is like... It's Pierce Brosnan is the... Is the um, yeah. Yes, yeah. yep. Uh, yes. He's like this, like, would-be totally, stepdad. Yes. He's like trying to be the supportive, like, loving... <laughs> <laughs> like, no cayenne anyway, i'm allergic to pepper um, <laughs> he just tries to murder him in the restaurant like that meme when like you're like oh you when you realize you were actually the bad guy like what 
Well, everyone is the hero of their own story. Yeah, um, that's true. But anyway, so Christopher Columbus or Chris Columbus <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually went to school with a kid that was a uh, aspiring film buff and in middle school he was obsessed with the films of chris columbus so i had to hear about this guy's body of work up to that point at an age where kids probably shouldn't be that interested in directors so (laughs) i got uh i was aware that he made all those films i do think that he is a legend in the industry as far as like the work that he did um and for me i think home alone is like the quintessential Chris Columbus movie um because that was the first time I was aware of who he was and again it was because of this friend of mine that was just like he's the best <laughs> um I was just like, it's really weird that you're obsessed with that um so yeah he I I don't know how to say this without I, I'm not trying to sound negative at all but I feel like the work that he did was fantastic and very much a product of his time um I I don't know that the types of films that he is famous for are being made today um, um, or will be made again. Um, that's interesting that you brought that up because I have questions about what you all think about the movie and how it stands the test of time. But we'll get to that later on. I'm really interested to pick your guys' brains about that. Michael, what are, what are your thoughts on Chris Columbus and his body of work? I'm not super a fan. Uh, oh. Mrs. Doubtfire is clearly about a really, really um, hostile and manipulative person who has wormed his way back into the life of people who thought they had liberated themselves from him. And (laughs) now he's holding them hostage and it's messed up. So he should be in jail at the end of that movie, not welcomed (laughs) back into their home with loving affection. Um, But it's funny. (laughs) And I suspect frankly, that it feeds the messed up ideas of some really uh, outspoken transphobes on Twitter that you can find really easily. There's just like, there's a lot of really weird, like scare stuff in that movie that I think is very gross. And uh, it, it feeds a lot of people's really bad ideas. So I'm not a fan of Mrs. Doubtfire. Hi, I'm Mr. Buzzkill. Let's talk about Perry Mason for an hour. Uh, but I, um, I'm just not a fan. And like, I don't like any of his other movies either. I don't like the Harry Potter movies. I think that the best description I've seen of the Harry Potter movies is that they do a really exceptional job of reproducing the events of the books and none of the emotional context. So hmm. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of his. Sorry. That's you fair. Like Home Alone. So. Let's talk about the ways that families treat their children. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a child who I I love Catherine O'Hara, okay? And if she were my mom, I would like her a whole lot. Unless she were an exceptionally privileged person who has the ability to do things like take a week long vacation to Paris for Christmas or whatever, and then leaves me at home and then they don't just like immediately come back for him, you know, or like send somebody over. I don't know. There are a lot of questions there. I feel like they could have done a better job of keeping track of their own children. I think if you're not going to be capable of keeping track of your child, maybe don't have one. Or, you know, well, as many as they did. Sure. <laughs> well, really, they only had like three kids, I think, in that movie. Like Kevin had like his older brother and I think he had a sister. And I think that was really it. All the other kids were his cousins and his uncles and whatnot in that film. But I just yeah. feel like maybe the story here is that Chris <clears throat> Columbus has uh, 
has a really horrible family and he is trapped in the, in his association with them. And he doesn't realize that he could just like disown these people and cut them out of his life and be a lot happier. <laughs> and so he's just going to keep making movies in which people are trapped with a family that's really toxic. And the solution, he does it, he does it twice. The solution he writes is that to, they lose him twice. Right. I'm sorry, the solution. The, yes. No, see, they're terrible people. And the solution <laughs> to this, Chris Columbus thinks is bind yourself more closely to them. And then you can maybe smother them before they smother you. I love that way that you look at that. That's awesome. I think that's all fair. I think if you if you take the more analytical <laughs> approach, if you take a deeper dive into these movies, I I could definitely I would definitely agree with you. I'm more on the side of they're more they're they're movies, and if I mean there are obviously Mrs. Doubtfire, like like Charlie was talking about. If you just I mean even just. Uh, a minor analytical lens with that movie. It's just like, holy crap, this movie, there's so many things wrong with it. I think <laughs> Home Alone, one, I'm a little bit more, it's probably my my love for the movie as a, as a child. It's like my younger self loves that movie so much that I can overlook the issues with that. Um, but uh, yeah, if you take, I feel like if you take almost any of the, uh, a majority of the movies from the 80s with an analytical lens, you could probably find so, a lot of stuff wrong with <laughs> with the, the story and the premise. It's uh, it's junk food. As I sit here and sort my Pez by flavor on my uh, <laughs> on my desk, um, I only have one lemon left, and I'm trying not to eat it while we record because <laughs> it'll be really crunchy. Um, <laughs> so it's junk food. His movies are junk food, and um, similar to the ways that we used to look at nutrition differently, I feel like we used to look at film differently, um, and. That's the best analogy I can think of no. as I sit here and look at a pile of Pez. I think that's a fair analogy. So, <laughs> Ruthie, looking back at Chris Columbus and, and his body of work, what do you think about him? Um, yeah, I, th- I definitely think um, I agree that uh, I feel like his sort of writing and, and things like that come from a different era. But honestly, I mean, look at the time that he started and then the time that he ended his, I guess, you know, career kind of retired from it. I mean, all the time people are like, how many times do we say you can never get away with making that film today because the whole world's changed and that comes with time. And, you know, we don't really have like evolution anymore as far as like our bodies and stuff a whole lot anymore, but we do like socially and in our minds, uh, you know, and medically and things like that. So I feel films kind of gone along with that. Um, because it's just, you know, it's just jokes that were allowed or that were funnier or people didn't realize how offensive they were on an underlying social status back then. You know, nowadays they're not like acceptable or slang terms and things like that. Um, so I feel like, yeah, he definitely was part of an era, era of um, film. I agree that it's junk food. I, I like that kind of analogy there, um, which to me just means that these aren't like, it may be like good nostalgia stuff. It's kind of like Jingle All the Way, fun, ridiculous Christmas movie. But like, is it like in a, like a, a pitiful film? No, <laughs> like not at all. But I think everybody knows that. It doesn't mean it we don't like, enjoy it. I feel like it. it has that like cult following because of how horribly bad it is. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> which is True. like at looking at all of those movies from that time with the eyes now as an adult who thinks of 
on a completely different scale of how things work. Like you look at these things and you say, there's no missed out. This is psychopath. This is psycho father. <laughs> like, Oh, let me dress up as a woman to be with my children. What the fuck? Like you belong <laughs> in an institution. Like, and then home alone, like you need to have your child taken away from you, especially when she notified the police, like, Oh, they drove by the house seemed fine. What the fuck? Like, no. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, Doubtfire needs to end in a restraining order. That's the way (laughs) that movie should end. That needs to end with him being toted off to prison and there being a lot of paperwork filed while she like changes her name and moves. He needs to be like on a list. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think my thing and maybe um, I'm coming back to it because the Goonies in a different way does this. But um, like in Home Alone, they've even, you know, why Kevin was missed why they were missed and they even got on the plane and everything without him and stuff makes sense. I mean, like it's explained if you watch the scenes, his ticket accidentally got thrown away in the trash. So they didn't have a physical ticket. The neighbor was messing around in the bag. So his cousin's the one that said, Oh, this short blonde kid is my cousin. Cause his back was turned. So, I mean, they explained they counted, why, yeah. He, yeah, why, why he wasn't counted and stuff. Cause when they got to the airport and they were handing out all the tickets, they had no tickets left in their hand. They're trying to keep track of 8 million people and blah, blah, blah. So the point is, but the Goonies is the same way. You've got like a group of kids that nobody really pays attention to. Um, I have written in my notes that one of the things that I like about the Goonies is that the world of the adults and the children is so separated. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's this is <clears> something I could say that the writer and the director did it's it's two very different perspectives like even i know we're you know we talked about doubtfire looking back now but you've got daniel side of the story or you know robin williams character who is like the you know it's like he's the funny guy that never grew up but does that mean he can't he shouldn't be able to still be a father and stuff but then you got miranda who's been carrying the brunt of the family you know it was just like so different opposing things and then the goonies the same way you got the parents that don't have the money to keep this going. And then the kids that are just like, we're poor kids, but that's like our whole club and we need to like stay here. And, but what can we do? And it's like, Mikey gives a whole speech about it's our time. You know, like the parents got to do what they got to do. We got to do what we got to do. It's two very different worlds. He seems to be able to illustrate in his films. Same thing. Home alone, Kevin's world versus his parents and family's world. Very different. Uh, To Michael's point, there's probably some deep seated trauma there in his (laughs) This upbringing where he did not feel like he was a part of the family. Oh, I think he's Uh, working through some stuff. uh, All this aside, I I do still think, and I will defend my position, that he is somewhat of a legend in the industry and that somewhere there's probably a film class that dissects all of these different elements (laughs) of his films. Um, And there's probably like the Columbus method (laughs) of of writing. so I think we could probably just talk about him for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you look at his body of work, definitely you could go back. Like, I was really, really interested in, uh, found it really interesting just looking at all the things that he worked on. Ruth, you mentioned Jingle All the Way. I think he was a writer for that movie or he wrote the screenplay for it, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, he definitely has an interesting body of work over his time. So let's talk a little bit about the cast, which is, I got to say, going back and watching this was kind of fun. Because they were such babies in this movie. 
Uh, so I'm gonna go over the main ones, and you guys can um, add others too. But the main ones that I that I have in my notes was Sean Aston, who played Mikey Brolin, <laughs> uh, who is actually that was this was like his first movie, and he went through like 350 auditions or something crazy. He said on one of his interviews. Um, Corey Feldman, who played Mouth, who anyone grew up in the 80s and early 90s knew who Corey Feldman was. Uh, Gremlins, yeah. Friday the 13th, Stand By Me, The Lost Boys. He also voiced Donatello in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie uh, from 1990. And then um, Joe Pantoliano, who played Francis. Uh, and then you had Robert Davey, who played Jake. So those are the big, big ones, but I thought it was really interesting. Oh, Ruthie, so... I was thinking about our last topic where we did crushes, and I remembered I had a huge crush on Andy. Watching this movie, I was like, "Man, like that was another another crush that I had." Oh, Andy, up. yeah. I was yeah. gonna say which one is that, but okay, yeah, the the yep. yeah, the, the redhead. One that Josh Brolin likes, yeah, yeah, the redhead. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so I had a huge crush on her. Growing, I was like, "Damn, I should have included that one." But anyways, Michael, I'll let you go off and uh, let you decide on where you want to go with the cast and what you want to talk about. So, what do you think about the cast, Michael? I mean, obviously, it's a it's a ridiculous smorgasbord of comedy and action superstars. I think my favorite person in it is Martha Plimpton because she's such an amazingly gifted comedic actress, and she's mm-hmm. done so much amazing stuff, and she has such range. And I just I don't know. I I promise I will not turn this into let's instead of talking about Perry Mason, talk about Raising Hope for an hour. But <laughs> I love that show. Raising it's hilarious. Like, I, I'm I'm somebody who does not enjoy sitcoms as a rule. That's just not a form of comedy that appeals to me. And uh, Raising Hope is probably the funniest sitcom that's been made in the last 20 years, in my opinion, it's, just, <laughs> it's really funny. It's about people who are in some very real circumstances. It's not, you know, tidy at the end of their story every 30 minutes. And I, she's so gifted and she's so good and she can do dramatic work. She can do comedic work. She can do everything. And it's inter- interesting. You brought that show up. Cause I was thinking about that show, the entire movie when I was rewatching it. And I was just thinking, I couldn't remember what else she had been in off the top of my head, but I just remember her in raising hope and how great that show was. I am with you 100%, Michael. Um, Charlie, what about you? Uh, what do you think when you look back at this cast? Well, there's a really good song by the band, the Lawrence arms, uh, called, uh, me and Martha Plimpton. Um, <laughs> so you should check that out. <laughs> Let me go, 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 go Google that real quick. About, yeah. uh, if I remember correctly, it's about the the singer it was like on an elevator with Martha Plimpton. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, as a kid, I really was like, oh, man, mouth is the coolest. As an adult, I'm like, oh, poor Corey Feldman. You, your life is yeah. not a happy one. Um, that, guy's, <laughs> that guy is a mess. I have no doubt that he suffered some kind of abuse at some point. Um but where he has wound up, man, people, uh, I also believe that he probably abuses people or has abused people, um, based on some of the stories that I've read. I don't think that's a particularly hot take to put out there based on some of the accounts that have come out from the people that he, um, would put up in his house under the guise of helping them that, um, wound up, uh, being somewhat used, uh, in his various endeavors. Uh, so, as an adult, I I was watching this this week and being like, oh man, that's kind of sad to like look back and be like, I thought that character was the coolest, and now I'm just like, Ugh. it's almost hard to separate um, real life now with what we know what we know about Corey Feldman in this film. I, I'll give you that. I kind of I thought about that about his life watching this movie. Yeah, 
Uh, the flip side of that is that I love watching Thanos pick a little kid up and uh, throw him off the yeah. weight bench or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and also, uh, Sean Astin... That's like the opposite of the Corey Feldman story for me, where like he has had all these great roles where I'm just like, oh, man, it's awesome to see this kid in this role that I liked knowing now where his career would lead. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag for me when watching it. But I and isn't Chunk a lawyer now? <laughs> Not that yeah. he's one of the, the big yes. names yeah. Hollywood in Hollywood. Lawyer. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's just interesting. Uh, I guess it's a mixed bag for me on how I feel about the, the cast. Ruthie, uh, looking back at the cast, what were your thoughts when you uh, revisited this movie and thinking about it again? Um, It's definitely, yeah, it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, It's weird because for the longest time you just watch it and you just know them as these characters. And then as you get older and you start to pick up on the names and you, you know, you go back and watch the movie like every few years, you're just like, oh, my gosh, that's right. You forget like, uh, you know, like Sean asked and I'm sure a lot of people are like. Oh, you know, he's Samwise or whatever. And it's just like really cool to know that they go that far. Josh Brolin to think this was like his debut and, you know, he was this teen brother, you know, and and then to know like later he goes on and is like a tremendous actor who does like so much yeah. more. Yeah. And it makes you wonder. Um, yeah, I just like it. I, I agree. Martha Plimpton, I had like a crush on her. That would be probably my crush from this movie was Martha. <laughs> I just thought she was a cool nerd didn't you know who was so over andy and so like andy being like all brash in her and um brent's thing she was just like okay you know she like she's that friend and i'm like yeah i could relate to that she's funny um i also like you didn't really talk about it but like joe uh pant uh panto liano uh he's always been one he's the brother a lot of movies he's been in wasn't he in the matrix yep. isn't he cyrus yeah. in the matrix yeah. that's yeah. right he's cyrus I remember, he's in I a lot of movies in, <laughs> in the matrix when he's talking with the agent and he's eating that steak it looks like the best steak that's ever been made oh yeah yeah, yeah. ever yeah exactly. i want that steak <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then like Ann ramsey oh yeah sorry yeah in sopranos and yeah he's just like the epitome of like that that skeevy or like best friend or like that bit italian character he like just has always owned up to that i think you know um so he's he's really big and then ann ramsey uh has been around the biz forever as like the mom the aunt the creepy woman like she's just always like this so hardened aged character she's just got such an aesthetic that i can respect so yeah that's that's probably how i've how I feel about it and stuff um, about the cast. I think yes. the only thing is, is uh, later on when I got into theater tech, I wanted to know more about sloth and I know we're going to talk about sloth, but uh, I did not know that the actor that played sloth when I was looking him up, I didn't know he used to be an NFL player. Yeah. So that was interesting. He was more famous for NFL work than acting work. Yeah. So, that's, uh, that's, that's true. Yeah. I have some fun facts around, around sloth and a few other things. Um, um, at, right after this, actually, that I wanted to talk about. Oh, okay, sweet. Josh, uh, what are your uh, thoughts on, on the cast and when you revisit this? Everybody says, you know, the cast is a mixed bag of success, failure, exposure, not exposure. This person carried on to do great things. This person did not. But I'm always going to like, I remember, so uh, to be uh, transparent with everybody, I did not watch this film as a child. All right. Get I, out. Get out. out. <laughs> All right. So. 
I watched this film like for the first time, maybe in, I think it was like 2014, something like that. It was the mm-hmm. first time I'd ever seen it. Now, <clears throat> I remember watching it and seeing uh, Robert Davi, who is, he plays Jake Fratelli, the older brother, the guy they bust out of prison. And so he is actually a renowned, like, actual singer. Like, he was in the, uh, I forget what it's called. He was part of, he auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera, Metropolitan Opera, and then he had first place at the New York State School of Music, right? And so some of his, I guess that's something that he added to the character for the film, his singing, right? But I'll always remember in the film The Hot Chick, he plays the main characters, I forget her name. He plays her sis, her best friend's father. And so her mother is having like a psychotic episode, like, oh, I know they're up to something. And he looks at her dead in the face. And this is like, I'll always remember this aspect of him was in this scene. He looks at her dead in the face and he says, if you, if you ruin April's night, I will have you put away. Like to his own oh, wife. Yeah. <laughs> just, I've always thought that's like the funniest thing, like leave your daughter alone. Let her be a teenager for the love of God. Like, just let me do my crosswords. Like, <laughs> But I feel like the singing that he added to the character in the film was definitely something that was not written in. Maybe something that he added. You know, they had it in the video game. Uh, in the Goonies first, vid- first video game, which was an arcade release, uh, he would sing at you and the little music notes would. Really? That's, that's crazy. I did not. That's uh, interesting. So like that aspect of the character made it all the way into uh, other media formats. That's cool. He did not and sing then, in Goonies too, <laughs> which was the, which was the next video game. They they took that right. element out of it. Well, I mean, all the actors in it have their ups and downs. I mean, it's just such a mixed mixed bag of people that have that have gone in so many different directions. It's there's no real way to say. I yeah. mean, who would have thought that Josh Brolin plays this character and then he plays Thanos, this ultimate supervillain <laughs> that everybody in the world is like, yo, fuck that guy, you know? Yeah, he has had quite the career, I will say. Looking yeah. back at at Josh Brolin, it's funny that he almost didn't get this role, which is uh, it's just always funny how how close people are to success versus not having success in Hollywood, and I think that this is a perfect example of that. So these are the fun facts that I thought were interesting. Um, Donner, the director, denied the child actors access to the massive soundstage where the pirate ship was built. So one, they built the ship. In the final scene of the movie, their genuine reactions were real for seeing it the first time, but. What ended up happening was Josh Brolin wound up swearing. So they had to reshoot the scene when they first saw the ship. He said shit, and they had to like re- reshoot the scene. The mayor of Astoria, Oregon, which is where the film takes place and was filmed from for most of it, named June 7th Goonies Day in honor of the movie. Chunk, the actor who played Chunk actor Jeff Cohen, Actually, had chicken pox, and yet he was so concerned about losing the the part that he still showed up on set regardless. Supposedly, you could see it when he does the 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 belly shake in the beginning of the movie. Supposedly, the truffle, the truffle shuffle. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that, supposedly you can see Mark Chicken Park Mox in that scene. I didn't I didn't look or pause to look for it, but I thought that was interesting. It's in the laser disc. Edition. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the remaster, <laughs> the 4K remaster. So Data's introduction is accompanied by the James Bond theme, which Spielberg appropriated in exchange for Bond producer Albert R. Cubby's broccoli using the Close Encounters theme in 1979's Moonraker. 
they did like a, I guess a swap for appropriation of the their music. <laughs> the film was a box office success, grossing 124 million dollars against 19 a 19 million dollar budget. And Sean Astin got to keep the treasure map, but his mother threw it away later in the bin after mistaking it for trash. So, <sighs> Charlie, wow! I heard the sigh. I'm gonna let you go first and react to to <laughs> those fun facts. Uh, I, I knew the pirate ship thing. I didn't know the cussing thing, which is interesting because they say shit a lot. Uh, um, right in, in that movie, they must have been like they only had a, a certain amount. Certain amount. You are correct though. Like in the scene when they come out of the the shoots down the water slide, the water slide rocks, whatever. Uh, they come out. Corey Feldman yells shit as he comes right. out, well, like very, very, loud, very pronounced. Yeah, exactly. Like the uh, what's his name? Uh, Chunk, Chunk says it. Oh shit. When, when he hits, when he smashes his milkshake on the on the thing when he yeah. smashes it. So that was interesting. The money thing, I'm not surprised that it blew up. This was a media event. Cindy Lauper did two music videos with cameos from professional wrestling, and the Bangles were in it. The Bangles were huge in the 80s. Yeah, uh, yeah. like this was a massive media event. So I'm not I'm not surprised that it made as much money as it did. Um, too big to fail. as as, as far as blockbusters go that was a lot to chew on as far as points give me another one of those talking points that i missed and i'll let you know my thoughts on it uh what about the chicken pox one that's gross (laughs) mike that's my my thoughts on that that's gross (laughs) michael what about you what do you think about those fun facts uh i hope he gets the shingles vaccine later in life um but uh so there these are tangents but there's a long and rich history of people who are not well enough to perform a role being scared of losing the role. And I kind of feel like that's weird and sad. Um, but didn't, it's also kind of funny because, you know, he didn't die or anything. And someone almost did though in the wizard of Oz, didn't they? Didn't somebody oh, get like, yeah, another no, guy, the, the tin man, he, a lot of them got sick from the makeup because the makeup yeah. contained a lot of really dangerous chemicals. <laughs> um, but the tin man got really sick from the makeup. Uh, so it made me think of one of my favorite facts about the matrix, which clearly you would not imagine is a directly related movie, except for Joe Pantaleon, uh, Carrie Ann Moss in making the matrix. She injured herself doing a stunt, uh, like doing a fight scene shot or rehearsal, even I think like three weeks into making the movie and then didn't tell anybody and filmed mm. the rest of the movie with an injury because she was worried they would fire her. If she asked for like a couple of weeks to get over this you know, mm. injury that she had and that kind of stuff happens all the time. It just really goes to show like how much actual work goes into making these things. They may be junk food, but there is a ton of work and a ton of people like, really putting themselves on the line in order to make things like this happen. Yeah, it goes back to like I was saying earlier, you just never know. You could be one roll away from making or breaking your career, it seems like, you know, like we see with Josh Brolin. So maybe that's what he was thinking, that this could be my big break and it could lead into, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So, um, yeah. Josh, did Josh, did any of those fun facts stick out to you? So, uh, like Charlie, I knew about the about the reshoot of that initial thing, which must have been super frustrating because he probably had it all planned out. He's like, okay, it's going to be genuine. I'm not going to show him the set. And then he messes it up and they're like, oh, Mr. Brolin, son of a bitch. Like, so I didn't know about the cuss word. I didn't know about the cuss word. So that's actually interesting. I didn't know about the cuss word thing. As far as having chicken pox, I, what? Like, shouldn't, don't you have to get screened? I, is there no process for this? What do parents? Right. They probably knew about it. They're probably like, you'll be fine. They're probably Go the ahead. ones that told him to do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. 
sweetie, honey, we're about to make a lot of money. You don't tell anybody <laughs> about your itchies, okay? Yeah, I'm just going to smear some foundation on this. And- <laughs> so I, rem- yeah. I remember when I was coming down the chicken pox, it was photo day for Little League Baseball. And uh, I was walking across the field after getting my picture taken and i just started throwing up like Whoa. i had like a <laughs> yeah <laughs> walking puke walking puke. it was just like, i don't feel so good <laughs> something and then wrong. like had a fever and then like you know and then the what you think of when you think of chicken pox set in like the the bumps and everything so like it was uncomfortable man like i can't imagine i i, I threw it away and was just like it's gross like i can't imagine sending my kid to work like just get out there get it done my goodness so P- peter give me another one of those facts real quick well uh, the treasure map being thrown away by sean astin's mother oh yeah so that being a set piece like does it not elaborate anything else like was she fined like <laughs> we had to make this thing like <laughs> what <laughs> what does, I don't know. I mean, no, that's just a fact, man. He, I didn't. There's no like huge article that the gravity of what his mother. Oh, mommy threw it away. Okay, I'll just man. Ask look, moms throw away all kinds of shit. My mom threw away all of my original NES games and my original Nintendo, which some of those were super rare and probably worth a few few dollars. She just straight up threw them away. Like moms throw away anything. How that, long ago was this? Oh, this was probably 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago. Oh. Yeah. So moms would throw. Oh, and also another fun fact, which I read about. Apparently, they used actual blood on the map too. I don't know if that's true or not, but I read that as well. <laughs> Man, nineteen eighties film standards. Yeah, I don't know if anyone actually like used their own blood or where it came from, but that's what some one of the fun facts. It said. came from the prop master. So, they ran out of red paint. <laughs> so Ruth, if I read the same shit that I did, <laughs> somebody's probably looking at it. Oh, I just cut my hand. Come over here. Bleed on this. <laughs> Yeah, Ruthie. no, no, he cut his hand. He did Just it on like... purpose. Yeah, no, it, <laughs> uh, well, remember how I told you I wanted, I was really interested in theater tech yeah. during like high school and stuff when it started. And so anytime I'd watch a film and there was like special effects or like makeup, especially like, you know, creature makeup and things like that, I really wanted to know everything. And so for the Goonies, I looked it up and I remember the prop stuff. I was looking at that and basically he was making the map and they aged it with coffee and stuff, which is pretty common uh, for like paper aging and stuff like that, coffee and dirt. And uh, he wanted a little blood on it and stuff, but the paint he had was completely out and stuff. So the prop master was like, fuck it. And he just like cut his finger a little bit and smudged it on the edges and let it drip and stuff like that. And I was like, what? (laughs) So yeah. That is some dedication. Uh, I mean, I guess the good news is since it's a movie being filmed in the eighties, they didn't just load one of the kids into a press. (laughs) (laughs) right 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 oh fuck yeah so i thought those were some some interesting ones my next question that i have i think is a good one that we we all i mean we're all here for this reason so what what made this movie special for you you know looking back on it michael i'll go i'll let you kick this off so i didn't watch it as a child either uh i grew up in the sticks and my parents didn't like movies and they liked movies they just didn't like the kinds of movies the kids liked and uh you know movie theaters were far away etc also my mother took me to see gremlins another movie written by uh chris columbus and uh and i loved gremlins and still love it today but my mother did not love it and that ended a lot of my getting to see movies as a child (laughs) um so (laughs) I was like 10 or 11 when that happened. That was kind um, of a common thing, though. Like the marketing oh, yeah. on Gremlins was, yeah. Yeah, very much so. She was one of those parents who complained. Um, hmm. So <laughs> I did not watch this as a child. I watched it in college, which was like the early 90s. And 
a lot of it was me going, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's who that person was. That's who that, that's where that person got their start, things like that. Um, and so it's always sort of been at an emotional distance for me. And I guess that's part of why it's easier for, to me, for me to be like, nah, I just don't like what this guy does. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Charlie, what about you? Uh, for, <laughs> grab a drink and a snack because... <laughs> Let me walk you you through some of the fondest memories of my childhood. Uh, So we went to the Raleigh flea market as a kid on the weekends. Um, And my mom, and there was a guy there. Uh, It was me and my mom and we would go. And there was a guy there and he had giant bins of Nintendo games in various states of um, some were in good shape and some were beat to hell. And you could pick out a game and he'd show you that it worked and then you would get it for really cheap. So anyway, I got the Goonies two, uh, which was put out by Konami and it came in a absolutely beat to shit box with no manual. And I hadn't seen the movie at this point. And I was just like, Oh, cool. This is an interesting looking game. So I got it. I played it. It has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. Um, Andy's not in it. There's Annie, the mermaid that you have to rescue at the end. All the other Goonies are in it. It might have been like a translation issue or something. Um, the Fratellis are in it. There's a third Fratelli brother. He's like uh, he's like the Hunchback from the Castlevania series. The little like flea man thing that like runs around like. Meow, meow. Wait, <laughs> you mean a fourth? Yeah, I get sorry. Yes, yeah. yes, a fourth. Because you're yeah. like a Hunchback. I'm like what? <laughs> so like a little are you he, talking about the same character that we're no, gonna talk uh, about soon okay just to clarify the way the character the way the sprite moves in the game is like the hunchback from castlevania he's ah. actually just like a miniature for telly so there's the there's the two full-size sprites and then this like half-size sprite mm. um so anyway i got into this game and it had like a lot of metroidvania aspects of going back and forth and it was this big adventure and i was just like what is this from and my mom was like oh there's a movie and we taped the movie. Michael's heard me talk about my love of my family's Betamax. My father <laughs> yes. always, backs the, always backs the wrong technology. <laughs> he was just like, Betamax is where it's at. So we, we had a beta deck. And uh, we recorded stuff off TV all the time. Uh, and we recorded Goonies off TV. And I wore that tape out. Like, I absolutely adored it the kids were exactly the type of friends i wanted to have they uh to ruthie's point like they felt like i like that's me like i this could happen to me this feels so real yeah. like, i go on crazy adventures on my bike and like what if i could find a a cave with treasure and like all this crap um so for me it was i don't know man it was really something special it like hit all the right notes um, I could play the game. I could watch the movie. I could think about it with my friends as I ran around, um, getting into trouble and mischief. Um, so that was the, that, that was it. That's my first impression. That's how it made me feel. I thought it was absolutely magical and it was definitely a big part of my childhood. You and I have very, very similar uh, feelings or, or experiences with this movie because we had my dad, we had VHS and so we recorded everything we, on TV and that's how I watched it all the time on VHS. And we I had a bunch of friends. We always got on our bikes. We rode everywhere we went. We go into the woods. We just did dumb shit all the time. So mm-hmm. same thing. Hit all the right notes for me. Ruthie, I know uh, on Twitter you said you were excited to talk about this movie because it was special to you as well. Um what made it special for you? Uh, I think what made it special for me was that um, uh, I think what made it special for me is that growing up, um, you 
I grew up in a, like in a poor, I, well, honestly, I'm just going to say, I think all of us here grew up like in the nineties where like going outside and being like, um, un, oh, what's the word? Unattended, unsupervised, unsupervised like basically being up, yep. especially during the summer, being outside from like nine o'clock in the morning till like 10 o'clock at night. Well, cause in summer the sun wouldn't go down till like nine o'clock or so, you know, and maybe neighbors would see you around, you know, like neighborhood watch of the nineties, you know, like people had the stickers on their windows and shit. That's like a real callback right there. <laughs> um, but like kids were unattended. So like the, the idea that the kids like a normal summer day would end up in this like going under and all these booby traps, you know, and stuff. And which was the cool element of the film that I think I loved a lot. Um, it just, yeah, it just, you, you get that feel of like, this is what adventures we wish we had. Um, you know, when we would go out on our bikes at nine o'clock in the morning and, you know, and stuff like that. So that was definitely one of the things I love about it. I think the other thing that I love about it is, um, I think I've, um, more so now, but like, these are like poor kids. Like when you really think about it, like the goondocks and everything, it, it sounds like they're just hardworking parents that are trying to do their best. And while it looks like a nice neighborhood, uh, from Troy's and Andy's perspective and stuff, these are like the quote unquote, like trashy misfits of the town. Like people want them out. People want to develop their neighborhood and stuff. And I grew up like in a cheap side of town. And so it's just kind of like, I, I don't know. It was cool seeing kids that, you know, were the misfits and odd and poor and, you know, and then criminal criminal people in the movies and stuff like that, like they're actually shady people you would see like in the bad parts of, you know, your neighborhoods and stuff. So I don't like that. And I like that and everything. And uh, yeah, since we're going to talk about how we feel about it now and stuff, I'll save the rest for later. But yeah, that's why I think I loved it so much and stuff. It, there, uh, there really is like a lot in the 80s, especially in which popular entertainment was about the underdogs fighting back against the rich people, yep. exactly. which is so interesting as somebody who vividly remembers the eighties. Uh, it's so interesting to realize that because like as a teenager in the eighties, I very much got the message that by virtue of not being one of the rich people, I was not, my opinion did not matter, you know? And so it's, it's funny that so much of our popular culture from that time is about sort of the opposite of what I think a lot of people were experiencing in their daily lives. I guess that's part of what makes them fantasy movies. Uh, and it's definitely not, you know, what followed quickly on its heels, things like Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever, where a lot of entertainment very quickly became about the most privileged people possible. That's what the story was about. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting juxtaposition against the, well, and reflection of at the same time, the experience of a lot of people. Yeah. I think everyone just likes the underdog story. And like, I think people, you know, I think the majority of us are not in that 1%. So we can, it's easier to relate to the, to the people that, you know, are facing op opposition or struggling. You know, I think it's a little bit easier to identify with them. And I think a lot of people at some point in their life went through that. And I think it's one of the reasons, yeah, like Ruth, like you said, that movie called out to me. You know, I, I, we weren't rich growing up, but we went out on our bikes. We had fun. It just called out to me. It was relatable. You know, mm -hmm. it just felt like that, like, like Charlie said, I felt like it could be me and my friends. We actually, I had a friend 
his he had an older brother and we used to pretend that we were characters in a movie and we had another friend that was loud mouth and kind of a dick we, he was mouth obviously <laughs> um i i may not look like it now but i was i'm half filipino so obviously i was asian so i was data and um my friend and his brother were uh you know the um sean astin's character and, and the older brother so yeah we actually pretended we were the characters from the movie at some point in time and in, in there so all right i've got a couple uh, other topics i want to get to uh, I just had to talk about this one before we finish it out with how we look at it now or how it holds up. I put my notes. I put sloth dash what the fuck. <laughs> like, that's what I put in my notes. Because seriously, like, I'm thinking about this character. And I'm like, man, how do you fuck do you come up with this guy? But a little bit about uh, sloth. So... Uh, Ruthie, you already uh, brought it up. Yes, he was a football player who was drafted number one by the Houston Oilers. His name was John Matuzak. He was 6'8". Uh, he was drafted number one overall by the Houston Oilers in 1973. He led a pretty sad life where he struggled with substance abuse but was widely known as a very like nice guy. And makeup artists needed five hours every morning to transform him into sloth. And he also had a remote control eye. <laughs> that you saw in there um in his ear as well so ruthie since you already brought up some sloth stuff what the fuck was up with sloth what it just what are your thoughts on sloth the character you know like i'm just kinda, i want to ping everyone's thought ruthie what are your thoughts on him yeah so i really did like the tech stuff i because i've seen like picture stills and stuff and everything and it was crazy yeah the, like the lower eye the one that's like further down his face is like the the electric one it's kind of funny because if you look at old pictures, it looks like he's got one of those old like 80s sweatbands going across his forehead and they've just like latched the eye onto that to be on his face that low. And then they take prosthetic makeup and just like kind of clay around it, which is really cool. What do I think of Sloth? Um, I, yeah, he's such a kooky character. And some days I don't understand why he was such a character, except that like in retro, when I really think about it, I guess, because this is like retro <laughs> Sunday fun day. <laughs> yes. Um, when I really think about it is that like sloth seems to be like between the two worlds. He's like this weird melting pot between like the criminals, the adults and the kids like all together. Um, he's got that simplicity of his mind. Obviously, he's underdeveloped later in the film. It does say that it does hint that the mama dropped him several times you know, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I know that's like the old trope of like, did somebody drop you on your head when you were a kid? You know, but it took that and made it serious. Like she dropped and she didn't care. And she's the one that actually messed him up. And they've kind of criminalized him for being such a freak when it was they who did it to him. So I think there's like a lot of subliminal messaging there <laughs> um, about parenting, bad parenting. But he was simplistic like a child. He could think like a child. And he had um, this pure energy because of that. But he had the criminal strength and, you know, was with these criminals all the time. And so he had this scary monstrosity element to him. But then he also was, like you said, the football player, 6'8", huge, big. So to the kids, he was very much an adult and could make his own choices and had the strength to do so. So I think his element to the movie was that he was a melting pot between all three of these worlds. And... I guess for the kids, thank goodness he was a good guy. <laughs> like like yeah. that part of him like won out and stuff. So I think that's the thing with Sloth. Uh, or anyways, that's that's what I think what the fuck is up with Sloth. <laughs> you know, before I jump to you, Charlie, funny thing is when I was a kid, I thought that was a real person. I didn't know that. I didn't think that was makeup. I thought they really had a person that oh, looked like that. Yeah. I was yeah. like, 
I felt so bad for him for the longest time because I thought that's how he really looked. I was like, I, as a kid, I'm just like, I felt so bad for him. So, Charlie, what the fuck, man? What's up with Sloth? What do you think? As a kid, I thought he was really scary at first. when Because you're supposed to. That's the way it's shot, right? You're supposed to be scared because the characters that you're watching that you're supposed to identify with are scared. Um, until you get to meet him. And then you just like, you feel sad. Like, this is... You feel sad for him. Like, he's abused. Uh, he's neglected. Um, and he's sort of... Uh, to Ruthie's point, he's sort of a symbol of innocence in, in, in the entire equation. Because he is... Even though he crosses across all these worlds, he he's this melting pot. He's not all the way in any of them. So he's this like symbol of innocence that ultimately prevails and helps the good guys win. Um, and is, you know, unshackled from the burdens of uh what has been placed upon him by his degenerate family. I really now I'm like going down Michael's path of like, ooh, Columbus was messed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that's the question that I have was I wonder, like, well, how the hell was he created? You know, like, how who says, like, hey, let's get this dude that's deformed, has all these, you know, grew up and was abused and chained by his mother. And but yet he's like, how do you come up with this character? You're like, where does and like, what was that conversation like? And then I read somewhere that that the actor John Matuzak actually that's sort of like his like fun personas so to speak that's sort of like actually him coming out um as the character okay. in the movie is what i read because he's just i read somebody that jeff cohen the guy that played chunk he was actually he loved working with him because he was just so much fun he was such a nice guy so i think there was actually some sort of like what's the word i'm looking for ad-libbing with with that character as well but i mean it's just who i just the thing well, about it's gotta that be, it's got to be cathartic right so yeah, i guess yeah you're, maybe you're, you're this I, i'm totally projecting i do not know the actor at all or his story uh the football player guy but like you know you've got this life where you were a big football star and you have substance abuse problems and you know life is life is fucking hard and now you get to play this character that interacts with children and is completely innocent and you're helping the good guy like i could totally see that like that would be catharsis to be like i'm a good guy today like you know i get to go and and be a good guy and yeah, I'm a big monster, but you know, I'm helping these kids. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Eat I'm pretty- my own mother off of a boat. Right. So, <laughs> uh, but as far as the actors, the actors getting into it and being extra fun in this role, I, I do think that, you know, as you identify with the character that you're playing to some degree, as you attempt to get in the character's head, like, sure, I bet he, I bet he was fun. He was probably awesome to be around because he got to be, he got to be the good guy and help kids for, for a day, you know, yeah. every day every day <laughs> for however long it shot yeah. um, and not have to go back to being like, Oh, I was a football star. And, you know, now yeah. I drink myself to sleep. <laughs> like, yeah. He know. had a really tough time. I watched a short, like five minute documentary about his life and it's really sad that his struggle with substance abuse too. So um, I think you're right. I think you actually hit on some things that most likely was behind the portrayal of of sloth the character so all right i want to close it out and i want to close it out with the overall film and how it holds up today are you all ready to do you have anything else michael or josh do you guys have anything to add with sloth the character before we jump into that uh yeah just uh what what just what the fuck <laughs> just exactly what your point is that's how i felt I yeah just, I, I had always just sort of seen sloth as a device and sort of dehumanized in that regard and so it was yep. 
a little hard for me to enjoy that part of it. And Ruthie, your take on like how he is an intersection of all the worlds of the movie is so amazing. But now I just kind of yeah. need to, I need to kind of rethink everything about my just knee jerk reaction to that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you all ready to move on to the overall film today then? So yeah, I, okay, Charlie, you, since you already let off or you alluded to it, cause you asked the question. What are your thoughts now looking back on this movie? Um, I think it's, uh, you want to hear my what the fuck is, what the fuck? This is a kid's movie and it opens with the scene of a dude hanging from a wire in a jail cell. Yo, what's <laughs> up? Yes. <laughs> like, 100%. That's exactly what my what 11 year old said. What the hell is this? That's exactly what my son said. He's 11 years old when he was watching it. He's like, this is now a kid's a, movie? <laughs> right. There's a gunfight. Um, it, it is, you know, stuff that we talked about. It's, it, it's, interesting how separate the world of the kids and adults are things that i thought were weird the scene where the what's the bad guy the the, the preppy guy's name troy 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 yeah troy. troy when the toilet explodes he's wearing a onesie like an adult size baby onesie well you can also see the rod <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it's his Maybe it's his wrestling getup. I don't know, but you can see the rod strange. that pushes the mechanism and pushes him yeah. upwards. Like it's very, very clear. Strange. Um, I also thought Troy's bucket would be a fun name for a dive bar. Um, <laughs> like if you want to go on Troy's bucket, I'm like <laughs> Troy's bucket, or maybe maybe just a band. Maybe like drink a drink or a band. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like a band's name to me. Um, another what the fuck one eyed Willie? Did they like they knew it was a dick joke, right? They knew. <laughs> They, they had to. <laughs> they, they had to. Yeah. Um, uh, the octopus scene. Uh, I didn't know that that wasn't in the movie until much, much later. Because on the Disney Channel version, they did include it, and that's mm. what we taped it off of. Interesting. Talk about props and you know development that goes into this. The, the amount of work that goes into this junk food. Um, you know, they made a giant Chuck E. Cheese style animatronic octopus and there was a whole scene with it that wound up getting cut. Um, and well cut from some versions, there's several different cuts of the movie. Um, and I didn't realize that that wasn't a part of it until much, much later when the DVD came out in the nineties. Um, I think I got the DVD in like 2000. So PlayStation two was my first DVD player. So sometime early PlayStation two era, I got the Goonies DVD and was like, oh, man, I loved this movie as a kid. And I was in college. And uh, I was like, I'm going to watch the behind the scenes. And I was like, what do you mean the octopus wasn't a part of it? Of course the octopus <laughs> was a part of it. Um, but yeah, so overall, I, 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 I still like it. I don't think it really holds up. It holds up for me because of the nostalgia. But if I watched it as an adult today and had never seen it before, I think I'd be like, Okay, it's a quintessential '80s movie. Um, it doesn't. That's it fair. Doesn't, it doesn't lessen it for me. It's still super special to me. But I could see where this is going to. You know, everything fades, right? So uh, I don't think my kids will be super into it. I'll probably make them watch it, but I, I don't think they'll be super into it because it won't be relatable. They won't be like, why don't they pull out their phones and call for help? Yeah, you know what's funny? Yep. Yeah, it's exactly brought that up. I was watching an episode of Young Sheldon, and they were, and he was on the phone, and his mother could hear him on the phone. And I had to explain to my kids, well, back in the day, you know, we had house phones, <laughs> and back in my day, so yeah, I think you're one hundred percent. My kids didn't sit through this movie. They, we watched, they watched about half of it, and they couldn't make it through it. It was just not 
it didn't it didn't wasn't relatable to them at all like it was to us so all that said i am super glad they never made a sequel because i know that was thrown around at one point i'm glad they never made a sequel and i hope they never do because i it's think still, it should- it's still being thrown around Ugh. still being thrown around yeah it's still <laughs> being thrown around i think it should exist as a moment in time as a quintessential 80s movie and if you like that genre if you if that's your you know if that's your go-to cheeseburger junk food it's great for that but i don't think they should try to reinvent it yeah that all that all makes sense ruthie you were you said you had some thoughts about how it held up today and and, and way it looks under today's microscope so what do you what do you think uh, for nostalgia's sake i de- i think it definitely holds up for many of us um i also think like on that note about nostalgia i think that people that grew up like in the 80s 90s of film and stuff like that i think we view film differently than people that view film now like nowadays everybody's a critic like even like high schoolers college kids they are all like breaking down this stuff and there's all this behind the scenes stuff nowadays I think in the 80s and 90s, I think like it was a whole experience like watching movies or like recording movies with VHS tapes. And so to us, I say it holds up nostalgia wise, but I think it's because we view film differently than newer generations do. So I think it's just the way we approach film that kind of holds up because I think I think that adults like our kids may not enjoy it. They don't understand a lot of the references. They don't get the humor. They don't understand 80s humor at all. They don't understand the aesthetics. They don't under a lot of kids don't understand what it's like to go out at eight o'clock in the morning on your bike and have that freedom of knowing you like Pete, you said getting into trouble. I remember that. I remember like being eight years old, finding like some like, oh God, this is gonna sound horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like it was the first thing that popped in my head. But I remember being eight years old and one of us had found like a box with like four shotgun shells in it. And like mm-hmm. our thing was like, how hard can we throw it at a rock and see if we can set off a shotgun shell? And like, hell yeah, hell yeah. And like, spoiler alert, we did it. <laughs> but like, nobody got hurt. But the point is, is like, kids nowadays will not understand that kind of like freedom or that like gritty danger that was like in the 80s or 90s, you know, and stuff. Same thing with like movies like It and stuff like that. Like, they don't get that time period of kids growing up, especially like small town unattended. Um, nowadays, it's just not heard of. Really, kids don't go out and do that anymore. And if they do, they just don't have parents, you know, or like they just don't, you know. Um, But um, something I will say, though, like looking back as an adult, like the movie makes me appreciate like everybody in your group of friends for better or worse, like has like their role, if that makes sense. Like everybody's got like that, like you were saying, everybody's got that mouth friend. Everybody's got that that Mikey leader type, you know, like the underdog leader type. Everybody's got the 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 josh and andy of the group that you're like oh god you know you guys make us sick you know and stuff or like just hook up already or they're together like i don't know it's just everybody's got that data you know and i think that's something that i really looking back appreciate because i can see the group and be like oh man you know if i was going to do this this is what friend i would call and stuff or you know the people in the group that are always being rude to each other you know the ones that get along the ones that don't yeah. And then, like in the booby traps, everybody had their role. Data was setting his own booby traps. Andy being able to play the piano, booty twaps. Yeah, <laughs> from like whenever, and and just everybody had their own thing they brought to the table that uh, made it. And then as a D and D junkie, totally was like a crazy party of misfits <laughs> and like their adventure and how things kept getting fucked up. Yeah. Um, but somehow they made it out of there. It's almost like a window looking into how kids grew up. Like, 
in yeah. the eighties and nineties. We always were out out and about, just around town, just getting into trouble, doing doing shit we probably shouldn't be doing. Michael, what about you? How do you think looking back on this film? So, like, like I said, I'm I grew up in the sticks, and we didn't have. <laughs> I remember being told as a child that places with sidewalks were dangerous, and uh, <laughs> and so. You know, there's like very different from my experience of childhood, which was very isolated uh, in a little place in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, so there's a lot about it that like even as a young adult watching it, I was like, oh, I kind of wish I'd had that childhood. Um, but at the same time, like I think it is very much of its time. And I think that people, kids who watch it today, just I feel like the pacing of movies is different now. And the pacing of movies in the eighties is very specific and the story structure of films in the eighties is very specific. I think that it does a great job upon reflection of doing what a lot of eighties movies did, which is, you know, reflecting the fact that the world of adults is both dangerous and enticing to kids and kids like off on their own, uh, having their adventures are sort of dipping their toe into that world and often way more than the adults around them realize. And I think that that's very true and accurate, but, I don't think that that's enough necessarily for kids today to, to connect to. Uh, I was saying at the beginning, a friend of mine from college who has an eight or nine year old daughter now watched it with her daughter this week by coincidence, because she felt like it was something that her daughter like needed to see in order to sort of connect with her experience of childhood. And at the end of it, her daughter said, yeah, I guess that was okay. No. And, and I think that that just kind of sums up the way that I expect a lot of kids these days would see it. I think it would just be so different from the life that they know, and especially from the story structures that they know from the movies and books and TV shows that they see today. Yeah. Josh, what about you looking back on that film by today with today's um, microscope so or lens? I can, I can understand the, the draw that it has for the time period, right? And I can understand the draw of nostalgia. Um, I myself used to go out early in the morning on a Saturday with my friends on a bike and we'd go bomb huge hills and fall and almost die and get up and laugh. You know, uh, I used to fist fight my friends for no reason. Like the older kids in our neighborhood would tell us that we would talk smack about each other to antagonize us against each other. And then we would fight and they'd laugh at us. All right. And we weren't like, we were like eight ten year old kids like and we would like we were like fighting like really like cutting each other up like going home all bloody and then the next day being like you want to throw rocks at the river like still having fun right so i definitely can understand <laughs> the uh i'm sorry <laughs> you need to make a sound bite of <laughs> what <laughs> you should throw rocks at the river <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh but you know i did all that stuff so i can definitely understand the draw of it um I once led a party of about 11 children into an old sewer and it was all with lighting coming down from the street and an old bike and a tent. And we were like, a man lives here. Woo. It was all cool and scary and disgusting. Uh, but none of us got sick miraculously. So I understand the draw right now. Looking at it objectively, the film is very bad. I'm so sorry. The film is so horrible. Like, fr listen, from an objective standpoint, <laughs> not from the nostalgia in you from the child who watches it and you don't understand why certain elements function. Objectively, the film, like, wh why does his dad have this stuff in the attic? Where does he get it all from? 
why does he know about this story? Was he the guy? But it's been hundreds of years. Like, there's no explanation of how the magic comes to be. He's why is? Why are people not talking? Why is nobody looking for these children? Chunk literally calls the police, and he's like, "I'm here." And it's been overnight, and yet the police have not raided this building. Like, what is going on? So it's all of these continuity things that from an adult, especially an adult in today's time, looking at it, it's like looking at it, looking at Home Alone. You're like, why don't they think of these things? They're child. Like, how irresponsible can you be? But nobody was making these complaints in the 80s when the film came out. In the 90s when the film came out, they were like, yeah, that's hilarious. They forgot their kid. It's cool. So objectively, high high comedy, (laughs) objectively, I don't mean I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings watching, listening to the podcast or Charlie. I know you hold the film in high regards, but objectively, just from an objective standpoint, the film is what's up. And then data data is with these contraptions that the laws of physics do not apply to. He has this shitty little squeegee, like, suction cup that he shoots with a piece of twine that has enough generating force to stick to a barrel to pull his whole body across asphalt to lodge <laughs> himself in. No, like, you can't do that. Like, he, and then he, he shoots it at the, at the mama, the Miss Fratelli, and she turns her gun to receive it. She's like, oh, he's going to shoot me with this thing. Let me stop pointing my dangerous item at him so that he can succeed. He rolled a nat 20 on that event. That's what happened. <laughs> so the movie, the film objectively is bad, but I completely get why it has the nostalgic draw of the underdog and children succeeding and going on an adventure and having fun and being out without your parents and not having limits and having to think for yourself and, and digging into these problems as a group. I get that draw. It's super good. And I, I do enjoy the movie, but objectively, like, what? Like, what is this plethora of things that make no sense? At least, like, do some research to make it look like it works. When he slicks the log with the back of his sneakers, what? What is that? It's I think but that's, that's <laughs> it's a testament of the time of filmmaking. We weren't, people were not were overlooking those things. They weren't calling for the the realism at that time during film, like Ruthie was alluding to revolution of film. You know, in the eighties we saw all these these weird things happen that as we look back on now, we're like, what the hell? That doesn't make any sense. Why didn't anyone do this? Why even look into it? But then it's part of that at that time, audience the audience just overlooked it and they just enjoyed it. Um, people were less cynical. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Really? I think yes. so too. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Really, but, as a product of that era, I contest that. It's. <laughs> I'm pretty cynical. You are now. Were you? Yeah. Were yeah. you cynical then? Yeah. Well, yeah. I wasn't very. I wasn't any fun as a child either. <laughs> but I would just say my my final thoughts on the movie. Yeah, I agree. I mean, by today's standards, this movie would just not hold up. Like, if I'm looking at watching it with my wife and my kids, it was just like they were yelling a lot in this movie like the dialogue was all of them were yelling yeah and it really just drove me crazy and uh i think just the overall movie doesn't stand the test of time which is sad because movies like scrooge does to me but this movie just just doesn't oh yeah um right and then then for nostalgia's sake i love it like 
like you eight-year-old me ten-year-old me you know you can't compete with eight-year-old ten-year-old me like i'm gonna i'm gonna love that movie but watching it through the lens now of like the way i look at movies nowadays and it just does not hold up so it was, it was kind of disappointing to go back and watch this movie because it's been such a long time and, and to to watch it now and realize really it's just not a good movie by today's standards but I guess I can appreciate it for for what it was, you know, for it for the era that it came out of, and for the little kid in me, yeah, it, it was that part is fun. But man, there was a lot of yelling, and the dialogue just drove, was driving me crazy. Yeah. So actually, they referenced that when you read about it, like that the child actors would get rambunctious when they were amongst each other because they're like not very experienced, you know. So they like get in each other's presence, and they're like, oh. I- like any line that they had to read they're trying to read over each other and nobody's cueing them or they're trying and it's not working so he he explains how it was a challenge you know uh the director explains how it was a challenge to work with all these children in a group but separate like he said that he would say that you know they work fine like those scenes with sean astin when he's reading by himself fine perfectly fine perfectly believable character but then they're all just like yelling at each other and then I don't know why Chunk has to have suppressed screams where he just goes, <laughs> like just yells silently through things. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Closing it out, I would say it was it just does not stand the test of time. Unfortunately, like some movies do. That that was my final thought on it. Looking back on it. So before we close it out, do you all have anything to say before we say our goodbyes? Thanks no, for having us. Yeah, it was great meeting you guys and having having this little powwow together. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, sorry, we're both trying to talk over each other. Go ahead. <laughs> it's like we're Goonies. Middle-aged Goonies. Well, no, it's been an honor and pleasure to have you guys on here. We've been talking about collabing for quite some time, so I'm just happy that we could get together and do this. So thank you for coming on. For those of you listening, um, I will link their podcast in the description. So check the description out for all of their contact information, their podcast, um, and check them out. They have a really good thing going on, and um, I really enjoy it as well. So that being said, I just want to say thank you guys one last time, and I really enjoy this, and I hope we can get together another time and, and do another collab episode. Yeah. If you ever want to talk retro gaming, I'm your guy. Yes. Or if you ever want to talk about the movie Monster Squad as a movie. <gasps> I love Monster Squad. Okay, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, another movie with references to genitals. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that being said, thank you guys so much for coming on, and I look forward to seeing what you all do in the future. Great. Thanks, so By the way, we re- we reference Konami, so Metal Gear references in the bag for this episode. I don't care what anybody says. And as always, don't be shitty. Adios, everybody. Yeah.